Slate's Better Call Saul TV Club podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And right now, get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash Saul. The following podcast contains explicit language. Slate Plus members get early access to our TV Club podcasts about Better Call Saul immediately following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member and you want early access, sign up at slate.com slash Saul Plus. Lights start a blank and those handcuffs click. You know who to call and you better call quick. Saul, Saul, you better call Saul. You fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. You better call Saul. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul. I'm June Thomas, the editor of Outward Slate's LGBTQ blog, and I'm here today in the New York studio with Seth Stevenson. Hello, Seth. Hey, June. I see that they uh, shut down all the power in, in Slate offices. Everyone has turned in their cell phones for you. Yeah. I see that you're wearing a spacesuit lined suit or a space blanket line suit and uh, we're now powering this podcast booth with a kerosene gas stove. Well also our producer Joel Meyer is uh, riding a bicycle and generating electricity it's very throwback Thursday even though we're recording on a Friday but it's worth it because I feel like I really my mind really is, is much sharper. It's all for you June. Thank you appreciate it. What are you packing Seth? What am I packing? Uh just pimento, just a little pimento sandwich. Actually, uh, more like a bagel, more like a raisin, cinnamon raisin bagel. <laughs> well, I may I recommend pimento. It is the caviar of the South. Wait, is it just cheese? I'm not even I've clear. Well, I thought it. it was an olive. I yeah, I did too. I thought it was like an olive loaf. Well, we're we're apparently not Southerners. But can we note? Yes. Pimento does end in O, but it's three syllables. It is. I know. That freaked me out. The chain has been broken. Yeah. I mean, we'd already broken it with uh, Alpine Horn Boy what, 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 earlier. <laughs> Alpine Shepherd Boy. Alpine Shepherd Boy. But we'd been doing all, you know, bingo, rico, nacho. Mm. Uh, and here we are. Pimento. Three mm. syllables. Mm. Where will they go next? Oh, my goodness. But, of course, I'm sure the, uh, the Gilligan uh, apologists will have a very clear reason why it's probably three syllables like, was necessary. It's like a Fibonacci sequence. Exactly. It's, they're spelling out some sort of code numerically. Precisely. It all hangs together, June. We got quite a lot of listener response to our last episode, did we not? We did. Speaking of Gilligan Easter eggs, <laughs> we got a lot of response because I had issued a listener challenge. And that listener challenge was, tell us, so we know that Howard Hamlin's copier code uh, at HHM is 1933, which is appropriately the year Hitler came to power. (laughs) And we learned that Chuck's copier code at HHM was 1868. And I asked listeners, listeners, what is the significance of 1868? How does it relate to Chuck and to the Better Call Saul universe at large? We got piles, virtual piles of responses from our listeners, including... Many submissions suggesting that 1868 is the year the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution was passed, which addresses equal protection of the law and is very important to legal eagles everywhere. Mm -hmm. We also, people pointed out that Robert Millikan, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, was born in 1868, and he is best known for accurately measuring the charge of an electron, which obviously would affect Chuck, who's acutely aware of any empiricist 
famed for studying the nature of electricity and electromagnetism. So said Stephen Pilor. Yes, and a listener named Elise said, just a guess... On Chuck's 1868 code number, according to Wikipedia, 1868 was the year Thomas Edison received his first patent for an electric vote recorder. Could Chuck have had a thing about electricity even before he became impaired? Good point from Elise that this would be something that predated his indisposition. Now, not all of the listener submissions were quite so gifted. Um, Mason told us that 1886 is the year the Statue of Liberty was dedicated, which may well be true, but A, its relevance is lacking, and B, the code was 1868, not 1886. Yes, and my, perhaps my favorite submission from Bree just pointed out the Meiji Restoration was a chain of events that restored imperial rule to Japan in 1868 under Emperor Meiji, which consolidated the political system under the Emperor of Japan. The restoration led to enormous changes in Japan's political and social structure and was responsible for the emergence of Japan as a modernized nation in the early 20th century. That is a wonderful factoid, Bree. <laughs> But Bree just kind of left that out there as though, well, of course, of course, the Meiji Restoration. I mean, you can, it's self-evident. Do, do you need her to connect the dots for you? <laughs> do, do I need to spell it out for you, the link between the Meiji Restoration and Better Call Saul? Uh, so thank you for that, Bree. Maybe follow up with, with some context or <laughs> your thoughts on how that is applicable and relevant. Yes, Joel Meyer, our producer, is raising his hand. Query recognized. Joel. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Am I? Is this thing on? Excuse me. Okay. <laughs> Seth, uh, you know, now that we're done talking about this week's Listener Challenge, I think we have to go back to last week's Listener Challenge. Yes, so. Yes, we do, Joel. Thank you. Uh, Last week, we, or two weeks ago, let's go back in time. We jump around in time here a lot where we are all about temporal jumps. We're just like Vince Gilligan. I I think I used that. I'm out of time, right? Like, basically, that was two Listener Challenges ago, and... We jump around a lot in the, in the time frame. That's what we do. I mean, it's like uh, it's important to us to establish different timelines that eventually come together and the granddaughters of the correct age, all that. So two weeks ago or so. Some time we, ago. We, some time ago, we issued a listener challenge about the wanted posters in the police station. There were these ruffians on the wall. And we said, right, do we see any of them anywhere else in the Gilligan universe? Um, and many listeners wrote in to suggest that, yes, in fact, the third ruffian we saw, the man with the buzz cut and the thick beard showed up later in the bathroom of the diner while Jimmy was making a phone call and that man was using the urinal and did not wash his hands and bumped into Jimmy. And we uh, sort of uh, tentatively agreed with listeners that it did look like the same guy, although I will note that I registered some doubt. I said I was 80-20 because I wasn't sure the guys looked exactly alike. And I would just like to register that I could care less and I never could. Well, and June, June really couldn't care less about this. Um, and so it turns out that that was not, in fact, the same guy. That guy was like, you can go look this up. But there was a, he was a teamster. He's a teamster on these productions. And he had appeared previously in Breaking Bad. And he wrote in to clarify that he was not the guy in the wanted posters. He was the guy in the bathroom. I would like, however, this raises an issue for me, June, which is the importance of Easter eggs in the grand scheme of the universe. I think it is very fun the way that Vince Gilligan and his cohort place these Easter eggs throughout these, and, it's, and it can be very rewarding, I think, for viewers to track them down and identify them. It's like a little jigsaw puzzle. However, I would just like to note that I, and I think you, June, you can, Definitely you me. can speak for yourself, um, we would 
prefer not to blow out of proportion the importance of these Easter eggs because I'm actually a lot more interested in things like character development mm-hmm. and plot development and feelings and emotions and yeah. how the show makes me feel than I am in tiny little factoids that may or may not actually reveal anything right. <laughs> about these people right. um, or, you know, so. Uh, so that is great if you are one of those viewers who enjoys tracking down the Easter eggs and I encourage you to continue doing that and we will continue to address them obliquely in our podcast. However, I just, I just, you know, if you're really angry because we missed one or we got something not quite right, I would, I would ask you to take a step back from your angle, from your anger, go to the balcony of your mind, um, and think about, you know, whether those Easter eggs are really the most important thing in your life. Yeah, just look out on the city of uh, Albuquerque and just take it all in. Yes. So, oh, one other thing though, before we move on to actually address this particular issue, <laughs> which is that um, a couple of listeners wrote in to us and suggested a reason why. Mike might have been on the train. And that was that he had that bullet in his shoulder and that would have set off the scanners and alarms at TSA if he'd, if he'd flown on a plane. And I had never thought that a bullet would set off a scanner, but it makes perfect sense. So, yeah. Okay. That's an excellent point. Okay, but so, sure, that means he would take the train. But it does not explain why he was on the commuter rail, June. Why was he on the rail runner, not the Amtrak? Sure, he takes the Amtrak from Philadelphia and the Southwest Chief from Chicago. He stops in Albuquerque. Also, another listener whose name I'm forgetting right now pointed out that he was on the northbound track, exactly. which means he wasn't even coming from Santa Fe. He got off a northbound train, which is coming from some like podunk, podunk town south of Albuquerque. It makes zero Sense. It's almost as if this were fiction. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what to make of this. Shall we talk about episode 109, yes. Pimento? Let's move forward rather than back temporarily. Let's. let's. Flash forward, Jim. I'm very glad that we've spent all this time on other episodes because this episode is so tragic. It fills me with sadness. It is very sad. It makes my heart so heavy, and it makes me very glad that I don't have any siblings because they are evil, cowardly, Nasty motherfuckers who will stab you in the back at the drop of a hat. Well, I have a sister, and I would like to, <laughs> like to register. I, that was June. Was it, was my sis, Liz, that's, June is speaking for herself. Foremost expert on The Bachelor. She is America's foremost expert on The Bachelor and frequent slate contributor on all Bachelor-themed topics. But yes, it, it was very sad what happened oh. in this episode between Chuck and Jimmy. Um, And it also made me feel bad retrospectively for having, for example, been so hard on Howard Hamlin. Now, Howard Hamlin is a douche, sure. But we now know, and perhaps should have known before, or I should have been more suspicious. I just looked at that. I must say I rather like the way he wears his shirt and tie. But still, I I allowed myself to be affected by his excessive smoothness. And I... I immediately jumped to the conclusion that he was just as slimy and vile as he appeared. But actually, he was doing Chuck's bidding. And now I feel a little guilty for having judged him so harshly. Yeah, Howard Hamlin evinces a shred of humanity in this episode. Perhaps for the first time, we see that he's almost protecting uh, Jimmy and later Kim from the harsh truth. I mean, he's playing a role um, and being tougher than he perhaps even wants to be in mm-hmm. order to protect them from the deeper, much more disturbing truth, which is that Chuck is undermining his own kin. Exactly. And it's particularly sad because the way we had gotten to know Chuck 
throughout this series is as this guy who is completely uncorruptible, as this innocent cherub who's he's not even connected to the electrical grid. He doesn't use cell phones. He's just he's perfect. He's untouched. He's frozen in amber, a specimen of upright legal propriety um, who the outside world cannot infect. I mean, it's like this it's this big like physical metaphor about him that he's untouched by the outside world. And it turns out he's just as venal as the rest of us. Right. And he also is a coward, a, such a coward that he has other people do his dirty business. And we've also seen him as a helpless person who Jimmy goes out of his way, even after his long day chasing seniors around the mall. He still goes home and he brings home ice and bacon for for his brother and all the papers. And in fact, all this time, Chuck has been responsible for for Jimmy's state of being. And, you know, and he's the fact that he is stuck in that tiny room in the back of a Manny Petty salon. And Jimmy abides by Chuck's ridiculous strictures on, on bringing cell phones in. You know, he, he, he may not like it, but he does it. He leaves his phone outside in the mailbox and he has his little routine because that's what Chuck wants. And then what does Chuck do? Chuck goes out to the mailbox mm-hmm. and uses the cell phone that he forbids Jimmy from bringing into the house. And he uses the cell phone to ruin Jimmy's life. <laughs> exactly. As, as Jimmy says to him when they have their final confrontation, that cell phone must have been like a blowtorch in your ear. And yet you did that. You put yourself through that to undermine me. He didn't, he didn't use the term undermine me, but you put yourself through that just to get to me. And it's, I mean, it is, it's awful. Maybe we should, um, shall we listen to a clip from, this is from the final, finally, finally, after all this displacement and having other people do his dirty work, Jimmy confronts Chuck in a very quiet, just cold way. And Chuck finally admits what a skank he is. For the first time, he drops his mask. Ugh. Speak up. Tell me why. It's the least you can do for me now. I'm your brother. We're supposed to look out for each other. Why were you working against me, Chuck? You're not a real lawyer. I'm what? You're not a real lawyer. University of American Samoa, for Christ's sake, an online course? What a joke. I worked my ass off to get where I am. And you take these shortcuts and you think suddenly you're my peer? You do what I do because you're funny and you can make people laugh? I committed my life to this. You don't slide into it like a cheap pair of slippers and then reap all the rewards. I thought you were proud of me. I was. When you straightened out and got a job in the mailroom, I was very proud. So that's it then, right? Keep old Jimmy down in the mailroom because he's not good enough to be a lawyer. I know you. I know what you were, what you are. People don't change. You're slipping Jimmy. And slipping Jimmy I can handle just fine, but slipping Jimmy with a law degree is like a chimp with a machine. Seth, there's something so pathetic about Chuck's you know, truth-telling. He calls Jimmy like a chimp with a machine gun, but you can tell that there's so much just jealousy and envy in his view of his brother, and he wishes that he could be like Jimmy, it seems to me. He, you know, he's holding on to his privilege. He's holding on to his fancy law degree. I don't know where he went, but it was not the University of American Samoa. And Go land crabs. <laughs> yeah, go fighting land crabs. And... We've also seen him earlier in the episode when he when he persuades Jimmy to, you know, take the case to HHM that he's, yeah, he's a pretty relentless advocate. 
But he doesn't have any of Jimmy's flair. He's, you know, he's pretty standard. He's, as they would say in England, he's a bog-standard lawyer. Yeah, and, you know, it makes us wonder whether all this stuff about electrical impulses, you know, he's coming. Obviously, he's got a dark, hidden dark cave within him that is mm-hmm. a cave of need and envy, and it's just not a not a pretty thing that's inside of him. And, you know, I wonder how that links into this, this psychological block he has about electricity and whether he's got all of these defense mechanisms, you know, where he can't permit himself to be imperfect. He, you know, we know we've gotten this backstory about Chuck and Jimmy in the past where Chuck was always the good son and the achiever, and Jimmy was always the one who never quite was up to snuff and their mm-hmm. mom, you know, feels about them differently. And and we saw that. And and now we see that Chuck isn't perfect. And, and Chuck is is maybe compensating for a lot of his, his own insecurities. Yeah, exactly. And he, yeah, he was proud of Jimmy when Jimmy was in the mailroom. That felt good to him to sort of be the benefactor and to give his brother a job and to see his brother walking around and being friendly and being presentable. But he doesn't want him in the same business as him. And he also, you know, again, we've seen that Jimmy's the one who finds the case. Sure, Chuck really did help him and that was cool and all. But once it comes to a question of something like, can Jimmy have off his 312? Can he be alongside him in the executive suite? No way. That's where he just draws the line and he, you know, all of his so-called rules about cell phones and electricity, he was willing to let them go because he that's one thing he cannot have. He cannot have his brother being a peer, as he says, and that is just so pathetic. Just so fundamentally ungenerous. Joel Meyer has, is raising his hands again. Yes, Joel, query once again recognized. Uh, I have this week's listener challenge. <gasps> <laughs> Bring it on. Like, well, yeah, sorry. Was I, I was so stunned by that. I didn't know how to respond. <laughs> you just mentioned that Jimmy was eyeing Office 312. This week's listener challenge is, what is the significance of Office 312? Listeners, you heard Joel Meyer. What is the significance of Office 312? That is this week's <laughs> listener challenge. Send your thoughts, your guesses to podcasts at slate.com. Let's just take a moment to thank our sponsor. We're sponsored this week by Audible, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. You can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Content from Audible is downloaded and played back on your smartphone, portable device, or your PC. If you can listen to this TV club podcast, you can listen to Audible. And right now, you can get a 30-day trial and a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash Saul. Now, we typically recommend a book that you might want to check out since we've been spending so much time in the last couple of episodes talking about 1868 and trying to decode that number. What about a book that was published in that year? Louisa May Alcott's Little Women appeared in 1868. And it is an example of the riches of Audible because there are many different versions available. You can listen to favorite actresses reading it. Christina Ricci has a version, as does the great Jamie Lee Curtis. And there are some fine professional voice actors, too. So you can take your pick of narrators for Little Women, published in 1868. Again, you can get a 30-day trial and a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash Saul. Seth, I know we have other topics to get to, but I just can't let go of Chuck and his, and his evil doing. I'm just remembering how other th- plots from earlier episodes, things like Howard supposedly insisting that he change his name. That wasn't Howard. That was from Chuck. All of these things were that Howard has been blamed for. And I mean, the guy is not a nice guy, clearly, but... 
It was all Chuck. The worm has turned. And it makes so much sense now that he would change his name. He would not want to have the same name as that man. And that horrible face that Chuck had as Jimmy finally lectured him and found him out and talked about Ooh. what a Judas he'd been in this, that, that stone face that Chuck had. You can just see what it would have been like to grow up with him, June. You don't no. have siblings. You don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, that has been quite a lot about Chuck yes. and Jimmy. But let's talk for a moment about story B in this episode, which was Mike. His, his pimento sandwich, his lack <laughs> of firearm, uh, and his new role as a close-in protection specialist, which, June, is the proper phrasing for what he was doing. I'm glad you know that. Yeah. I once wrote a story. I wrote a story a year or two ago where I had a bodyguard for a day. Oh, my goodness. I've always wanted to go to a bar with bodyguards. I went to a bar with a bodyguard. Oh, my God. It was my amazing. Dream. He's a close-in protection specialist. Excuse me. Given. So this guy, he was about 250 pounds, former special forces. He guarded Saudi royals celebrities, CEOs. I had him for a day take me around Washington, D.C. I went to a French embassy party with him walking behind me. I went into a bar. The guy was amazing. He was a really cool guy also, uh, and he was amazing. But I learned a lot about the world of close-in protection. And one of the things I learned was he very rarely carries a gun. So that was completely accurate that Mike didn't need a gun. And why? Here's the reason. There, are, Well, there are a bunch of reasons. One is you're often traveling around with your, uh, with your subject, mm-hmm. with your primary, uh, the person you're protecting, to different states or cities where the gun laws can be very strict. And even if you are someone who does this professionally, often you're just not allowed to bring a handgun into Manhattan, say. Um, and so that's one reason that you need to be able to handle yourself without one because there's a lot – you know, if you're, if you're guarding a CEO and you have a gun illegally in a, in, in a jurisdiction where you're not allowed to have it and you get in trouble, that CEO gets in trouble and he's responsible. There's all sorts of insurance and liability problems. So that's what well, you have to abide by the law. Um, so that's one reason. But another reason is that your role as a close-in protection specialist is not, in fact, to get in a firefight with the attacker. Your role is to get your dude or your lady out of Dodge. Just, uh-huh. you know, get them off the scene. You're not trying to fight back. You're trying to run away and live another day. So really, um, what those guys know is um, things like Krav Maga, the Israeli art of self-defense, mm-hmm. so that they can quickly, very quickly incapacitate someone in a, in a close-in fight and then get out of there, grab their guy by the belt, shove him in the car and leave. And that's what uh, Mike did with the mouthy dude in the camouflage pants. Yeah, he gave him a quick little throat stun and then he was, you know, free to, and he had plenty of time to escape. Um, And that's basically what they do. Now, sometimes they might carry some mace because mace is Uh something you can carry in a lot of jurisdictions. And that's something you can use to quickly incapacitate somebody close in. But they frequently do not carry guns. And what this guy said to me was when when he's talking to younger close-in protection specialists who ask him for advice on how they should be training, he says, you know what? Take that time you would have spent on the firing range. Instead, use it to learn things like first aid in case the person you're protecting has some sort of wound and you need to, you know, get them through the minutes until you get to the hospital. Learn things like driving tests. Techniques, you know, evasive mm-hmm. driving techniques, three-point turns, like quick uh, on-the-fly three-point turns or recognizing oncoming threats. And another way in which that entire sequence with Mike was very accurate to the close-in protection ethos was he talked about, you're, you know, you're getting great value for your $1,500 because right. I did all this prep work. I did mm-hmm. all this legwork in advance finding out who you were meeting with. And that is like 90% of the game for these guys is walking up and down the stairwells of the hotel you're going to be in to see where the pinch points are, knowing where the closest hospital and private area airport is on the roads and how to get there and how, how to take an alternate route if something's blocked off. So this was, inc- I felt they did a very good job of portraying the life of the close-in protection specialist. I cannot believe how fortunate we are to have such a, a knowledgeable uh, host on close-in protection services. Yeah, can I, and can I just tell 
you how awesome it feels to walk into a, like an embassy party with a gigantic protection behind you, and everyone looks at you because they yes. know that you must be pretty important if yes. someone's protecting your back like that. That's why it's always been my dream. Yeah, and you feel, and I would just think there's a feeling of safety, of well-being, of just knowing that you're untouchable. Nothing is going to harm you, and if you've never felt it before, it's kind of quite remarkable. I wish they would sing like Sondheim, you know, nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around. <laughs> I can just imagine, you know, Mike is a pretty taciturn chap, but if he would just do like maybe a musical number one day, that would be great. You might have to make it, you know, sixteen or seventeen hundred bucks to throw in. Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. Musical I must say, I still don't really know why the Man Mountain ran away, but. It was uh, funny. Yeah, it was funny. funny. It was funny. Yeah. Um, and he also it would have been a tight fit in the car. So I, I'm glad we only had Mike and uh, Price, not his real name, um, <laughs> in there. Um, and Mike was absolutely right. The lesson is if you're going to be a criminal, do your homework. And that so many people in so much of the Vince Gilligan universe would benefit from that knowledge. And Mike, also part of Mike's soliloquy was that once again went to the very heart of the show, which was, you know, oh, you know, you can be a, a bad cop or a good criminal. You can be a bad priest. You can be an honorable thief. Um, and, and so much of the show is about, you know, where are the lines for you? Maybe you're going to make this choice, but you're still going to have a certain code you maintain, even if you are doing something not quite legal, right. you, but you still have this sort of personal code or uh, maybe you draw the line somewhere else. And it's all it's all about these people involved in various complicated situations trying to figure out where their lines are and what the right thing is. And sticking to their agreements. If you agree on a fee and it's $20 short, hand over that $20, Nacho. Or drop it on the ground. It was good <laughs> to see Nacho again. I was so happy to see Nacho. I, I have been expecting him. I mean, it made perfect sense that he would show up again, but um, I was happy. I love his soft-spoken way. I do too. He, and he's really a handsome man as well. Yeah. yeah. yeah good, uh, nice to see you, Nacho. Cheers to Nacho. Yeah. Salute. Well, Gene, this is the penultimate episode of the season, and we're going to get to our, our thoughts on the final episode coming up. But first, we want to talk about a few things that are going on around here. One of them is on Sunday, April 5th, uh, listeners, you have an opportunity to watch the Mad Men premiere with Slate's TV Club. So you can join Slate's Julia Turner, John Swansburg, and special surprise guest members of the Mad Men TV Club to ring in the final days of Sterling, Cooper, and Partners free at Brooklyn's Bell House, which is very near my home, June, <laughs> uh, just a few blocks away. So uh, you can come and do a little pre-show speculation and then watch live as the show premieres and then a little... Boozy, yeah, it's a oh, beautiful rendition of the theme. And then a boozy post-show live TV club. So this is Sunday, April 5th at 9.30. Um, and doors will open for Slate Plus members at 8 p.m. Slate Plus members who RSVP with their special promo code can attend a special early happy hour with Slate writers and editors and get access to preferred seating. That will be a lot of fun as we ring in the final season of Mad Men with some of the uh, Slate Mad Men luminaries. And for more information, go to slate.com slash madmen. One other thing uh, we want to tell you about uh, is what else is happening around the Panoply Network. I'm Margaret Lyons. Join me on this week's episode of the Vulture TV podcast alongside Matt Zoller Seitz and Gazelle Amami, where we talk about our favorite episodes of Mad Men, what we did and did not love about Netflix's drama Bloodline, and how you should feel about award shows. You'll find the Vulture TV podcast at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. Seth, I'm really worried about Kim because once Howard told her the secret and, you know, told her what a dick. Chuck was. She's very conflicted. She, you know that she's, again, she's protecting Jimmy from this horrible knowledge. 
But that has put a real barrier between the two of them. And I wonder if that is indeed the kind of the straw that broke their relationship. Uh, oh, it's, well, it's early for that. We've got, you know, we've got at least another season already, June, for the romantic sparks to fly. But I wonder if the shippers, if the Kim and Jimmy, the Kimmy... Mm-hmm. Jim, <laughs> shippers will be satisfied with the denouement of that relationship. And, you know, we've got one more episode here in the series. Will they? Won't they? Are we going to learn a little bit more about where they stand? Because it's it's still it's kind of hazy where it they is. stand exactly. No. Whether are they do they have sleepovers? Is that kind of stuff happening? And you know, I personally would like to know a little bit more about that. I would like just give me something, Vince Gilligan. You know, it's a long. It's going to be a long hot summer slash cold fall before the next series of Better Call Saul. And I would like just a little something else to hang on to about this relationship because I am firmly a shipper, I will say. Yeah, I mean, again, just to give Gilligan his due, he is so good at withholding information. Like, it just, instead of feeling frustrating, as it often is on television, where you'd, someone is just, you know you're being manipulated. And that can that's no fun. But when, for example, when Howard told Kim to close the door and the door closed and we're like, oh, we're not going to get this information. At that point, it was kind of clear what it was going to be. But still, it it's just it builds up the anticipation instead of feeling frustrating. He's very, very good at that. Yeah, and you know another thing I noticed, and, and he's and he's so um, you know this partly comes from his stature in the world of television, but he's so confident about letting things unfold slowly. Yeah, and he's also so confident about not throwing more at you than he has to. I was thinking about. Uh, you know, we live in an era of sort of maximalist television where mm-hmm. these like millions of characters intersecting and, got, you know, watch, try to watch Game of Thrones, <laughs> you know, the, you know, episode four of season three if you've never seen it before and tell me how much sense it makes to you. Uh, this show, it has like four characters. I mean, there's a few characters on around the fringes, but, you know, there are very few characters I was thinking about for an hour long drama. You know, we've basically got four people whose lives we're really following, and um, that's remarkable to me. Yeah, and I think I said before, I always thought that was one of the the downfalls or the weaknesses of Breaking Bad. There just weren't enough key characters. But I haven't had that feeling about Better Call Saul. We are still in episode one, but I still. W- I want to know more about yeah. Kim, for instance. I feel like I j- what is Kim doing when she's not going to see John Carpenter movies on Thursday nights? What exactly. is she doing? What's Kim's life like? Can I just say my favorite scene, I'm going to move away slightly from Kim because you're getting a little bit head up. Is More about Kim. Is, didn't you just <laughs> love when Chuck and Jimmy showed up at HHM and it was they got the full Downton welcome? <laughs> oh, they did. The it was magnificent. Out. It was so, I loved that. <laughs> Like seventy footmen. I mean, well, in June, that you. I mean, you're familiar with that. That's a welcome you get at Slate every time Absolutely. you walk in the door. As yeah. I said earlier, we turn in our cell phones and we also stand and applaud. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because you've earned that. Ah, yeah, I appreciate that. Appreciate I have that. a I have a question for you, Seth. You know, this week's every week the credit sequence is a little bit different. It's very short, a little bit different. Was that a urinal? This week, it was the uh, matchbook, the, the Better Call Saul matchbook sitting in the bottom of a urinal. I didn't know if it was a sink or a urinal. I didn't know if that was a bar of soap or what I believe is called a urinal cake. Uh, I'm not sure that I can satisfy your query, June. However, I can issue a listener challenge. <laughs> what sort of porcelain was that? Was it a urinal or a sink? Please answer June's question for us. I would appreciate it, listeners. <laughs> Next week's show is going to be three hours long. <laughs> <laughs> well, June, I am very excited for next week's final episode of Series 1 of Better Call Saul. I'm on pins and needles. I can't wait to see what happens, what sort of cliffhanger. You know there's going there's to be a, cliffhanger. be a cliffhanger. And we'll be here to talk about it. 
I'm glad you're not asking me what I think is going to happen because I have no idea. I think Jimmy will forsake the name Jimmy McGill, but that's all I can think you of. You think well, he's finally going to become Saul Goodman? This will be the moment? I think it might be. That'll be easier for us because we can yeah. stop trying to <laughs> remember no, what I've, to call him. I've completely embraced Jimmy and it's going to be now hard for me to call him Saul. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking, oh, we should make some prediction about, about what's going to happen. But I really, and this ah. is in some ways a testament to the show, I really have no idea. I couldn't even try to predict if you if you held a gun to my head or, or a pimento sandwich, rather, right. to my right, head, right. I couldn't possibly make a prediction. I'm the same way, so let's not do that. Well, June, we've done it again. We've come to the end of another Better Call Saul uh, podcast. But remember, listeners, we have issued not one, but two <coughs> listener challenges. To recap, those challenges were, what is the significance of Office 312 at HHM? And <laughs> was that a urinal or a sink in the title sequence? Or is, I just want to tell people that in England, they're called urinals. To recap, <laughs> was that a urinal or a sink? You can send your answers to that question, to both those questions, at podcasts at slate.com. All right. Thanks for listening to the Slate TV Club podcast. Join us next time when we'll talk about Better Call Saul, episode 10, the final countdown. And check out our other recent TV podcasts about House of Cards, The Walking Dead, and The Americans. Just go to iTunes and search for Slate TV Club. Our producer is Joel Meyer. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Bye, Seth. Bye, June. You better call Saul. You best call now, you hear? Hi, I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, a daily news show from Slate. Recently on The Gist, I spoke with Bo Williman, who runs the hit TV show House of Cards. I told Kevin when we started, I said, here's my ridiculous goal. My goal is to work with you to create a character that will eclipse all other characters that you have ever played. Subscribe to The Gist and all the other great Panoply podcasts at panoply.fm.